From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Can you just introduce yourself? Uh, what? I'm not going to introduce myself. You're going to introduce me. (laughs) (laughs) You're the only person to do that. I always have someone say, they say, well, hello, my name is. All right, fine. I will introduce you. And that, by the way, is really something that I ask everyone to do when I interview them, because then I produce these little introductions and use audio of them saying their name and what they do. But you know what? The man you heard is so successful. He has earned the right to have someone else introduce him, which will be me. So. Today, I am having a conversation about the power of being an outsider, of coming into industries with fresh eyes, of literally not knowing what you're doing, but feeling confident that you can ask the questions that other people cannot. And as a result, you can lead to solutions that others wouldn't have considered. And that is basically the story of the man you just heard, who (laughs) I am introducing, Naveen Jain. He's a visionary entrepreneur with a wide range of accomplishments in a very wide range of industries. The founder, most recently, of Viome, a medical testing company you'll hear more about later, as well as Moon Express, World Innovation Institute, TalentWise, Intellius, and Infospace. He is author of the award-winning book, Moonshots, Creating a World of Abundance. He was also behind the X Prize, a global future positive movement, and he's on the board of Singularity University. And he also just happens to be a really nice guy I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the years. And every time we talk, he tells me things that I just wish I had recorded about how to create a world-changing business idea and why the best entrepreneurs are so often outsiders to their industries and how he himself has asked the right questions that enabled him to innovate inside of incredibly complex spaces. And anyway, we finally decided to just have a conversation while recording to get it all down. And by the way, an edited version of what you're about to hear appears in the new issue of Entrepreneur Magazine. So how's that for an introduction? When we started, I wanted to dive into this idea of his that I just find so incredibly compelling, which I mentioned before, it's the power of being an outsider. So I said, I think a lot of people are incredibly intimidated to enter perhaps very complicated spaces that are ripe for innovation, but are so intimidating and full of people who have spent their entire careers focusing on some small nuance of whatever the field is. And you have made a career of entering spaces that you haven't spent your whole career in and then identifying opportunity in them and bringing real value. And that's not a fluke. That's because you firmly believe in the power of having a fresh perspective and being an outsider who therefore can bring value that insiders can't. And I'd love to hear from you to start how you came to recognize that. Well, I mean, if you really look at the data, it's so clear that any innovation, if you look at any disruption in any industry, it is extremely rare that the incumbent actually came out and disrupted themselves. It's rarely the case. Every time there is a paradigm shift, there is a new winner, right? I mean, you look at the Airbnb, wasn't somebody from the hotel industry disrupted through Airbnb. You look at Uber, you look at the you know, car, you look at the rockets, you look at the industry you want. It is the disruption in the industry comes from someone from completely outside the industry, applying the knowledge and skills from a different industry into this industry. And the reason is what makes you an expert is if in knowledge that you take it for granted, that foundation of the thing that runs the industry, you become so good at it that you are the best at it. And now that is what you know. You can never challenge that, right? So what comes, what happens is someone from outside the industry comes in and he says, wow, this makes no sense. Can we actually apply software to make this modular? Wow, that's nice. And to them, it seems like a common sense. And someone in the industry said, oh, what? (laughs) And that literally happens in every single industry, time after time after time. And I look at many entrepreneurs, God knows how many young entrepreneurs I talk to, and they always say, 
well, I know nothing about this industry. So how can I go out and do something? I say, that is your biggest asset. Your biggest asset is you know nothing about the industry. If you did know, if you were expert in that, that becomes your liability. It's not. However, having said that, I don't want to minimize the value of experts. You as an entrepreneur needs to be a non-expert, but you do need to hire a bunch of people who are experts in their industry. And your job is to challenge them why it can't be done this way, right? So yes, there is a value to being an expert, which is to tell you the landmines that are out there so you don't make the same mistake. However, your job as an entrepreneur to say, I I think we can do better. I think this should work. You need to try this out. Or I do know this looks like a landmine, but that was 10 years ago. And I really think the world had changed today, right? So if you think about 10 years ago, people couldn't have believed you could type something and it will come back and write the whole essay for you, right? I mean, if you look at the things that are happening today, no expert 10 years ago would have said, hey, that's going to happen, right? So I think the world is constantly being redefined by these disruptors who come from outside the industry. We are going to dig into this idea in great detail and offer some really practical tools that you can use to think more innovatively in any space and also talk about Naveen's journey into doing this to create Viome, which I will tell you, I literally just submitted my my medical samples to Viome and uh, It's going to be so, so interesting to see what I get back. Okay, all coming up after the break. Your business cannot run without great people. So where are you going to find those great people? Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed and its powerful suite of hiring tools. Here's one, for example, Instant Match. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Visit indeed.com slash problem solvers to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash problem solvers. Indeed.com slash problem solvers. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we're back talking with Naveen Jane, and he just laid out this argument that the greatest disruptors come from outside of an industry. And let's pick that back up. How would you recommend that people identify that disruptive idea? It's funny. I'll go speak at a college or something. I'm sure you've had this experience so many times. I'll go speak at a college and a student will come up to me and they'll say, where do you get an idea for a business? And I always say, don't start with that you need an idea. Start with somebody's problem first. Get to know a space and understand what problems people are facing. And then you can figure out a solution that maybe nobody else has thought of. But that's just a kind of pat answer. You have have actually done this multiple times. You've been the outsider who identified something that insiders either hadn't thought of or maybe thought of and thought was too crazy to try. But whatever the case is, I'm wondering what strategic approach you make to saying, you know, there is an opportunity in this space that I am not an expert in, but I can surround myself with experts and, and create something of new value. Absolutely. So, so there are two parts I want to answer this question. First part is that I think the pat answer you gave me. So to me, I look at the world and I said there are three types of people in this world. A people who identify the problems. And since every one of us, including a cab driver, can tell you 10 problems the world is facing, <laughs> let's call them human beings, right? Okay. And then there are a group of people who say, you know, this is how you can solve this. And we call them the visionaries and all these people, innovators, right? And there is only one special breed of people who says, I'm going to go out and do it. And that special breed of people is what I call entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs are basically problem solvers. And I think there's a mistake when people say entrepreneurs are the people who start a company. No, entrepreneurs are the ones who actually solve the problem. You can be inside the company and be an entrepreneur. You can be at home solving these problems and you could be an entrepreneur. So entrepreneurs are the one who actually say, I'm going to act 
on it. I'm going to actually go do something about it. So that's really the difference between my opinion, the entrepreneur and influencer and innovators and a visionary and scientist and someone who, you know, like human beings who say, my God, why can't someone just fix the potholes, right? (laughs) (laughs) And the second part of the thing is, I think, you know, how do you come up with these? So the way to, and I think this is, I think, I have this framework that I have used time and time again, and I'm going to go through that framework. I really think it will help people understand what to do. So every time before I take on a big project or I start a company, I ask myself three questions. Why this? Why now? Why me? And why this is a simple thing. Whatever it is you're trying to do, you say, hey, we're going to go live on Galaxy X. Don't care what it is. You say, God forbid I'm actually able to solve this problem. Would it help a billion people live a better life? That means, is this problem worth solving? And the reason you do that, whether it's a billion people, whether it's a million people or hundred million, you can pick a number. The reason you ask yourself that is not because you're philanthropic. Yes, you want to do good in the world. But to me, it's simple. If you can build any product, any service that improves the lives of a billion people, you can create a hundred billion dollar company. Or you don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to create a $100 billion company. What do I do? Right? Making money is a byproduct of doing things that make people's life better. Period. That's it. Right? So that's the thing you start with. It. What is the problem I want to solve? And if I'm successful in solving it, would it move the needle for the humanity? Second part is, why now? I mean, is the time now or the time was 10 years ago or the time actually is 10 years from now? Because number one thing that actually is the thing that have been, actually I think Bill Gross actually talked about it, that number one thing that determines the success of a business is a timing. I mean, of all the things they looked at, timing happens to be the number one thing that's a predictor of a business. So why now? And so in this one, I asked actually the two parts of the framework in the why now. What has changed in the last one to two years? But more importantly, What do you expect to happen in the next three to five years that will allow you to solve this problem at scale in three to five years? And today's technology can't be scaled at this current price point, but you know in three to five years this will happen. And this problem could not have been solved five years ago or 10 years ago. That means you're actually intercepting the tomorrow's technology, exponentially growing technology to say, I can scale in three to five years, but I can apply this today. And the second part of this thing is you ask yourself to solve this big problem. What are the subset of problems that need to be solved for this big problems to be solved? Right? And by doing that, you can say, hey, I need to live on Galaxy X. Great. Like, what problems need to be solved? You don't say it can't happen. You simply say, what are the problems that need to be solved? We have to be able to leave Earth gravity. Got it. Leave from Earth orbit, go to the Galaxy X. Got it to be able to land on the Galaxy X, got it. Now we have to be able to build the infrastructure and live there, great, four problems. And then you can say, all right, first problem is solved, second problem is kind of solved, and we can go on and on and say, all right, this is really the problem if we can solve that almost everything else will fall in place, right? Or here are the three problems we need to solve and then everything else will fall in place, right? Now, the third part of the puzzle really is the most important, which is why me? And why me comes down to is, what questions are you asking that are different from what everyone else in the industry is asking? And this is really by asking a different question, you open up the set of possibilities that never existed, right? So coming, coming back to living on Galaxy X, most people will ask a question and say, hey, if you're going to live on Galaxy X, how are you going to grow the food on the Galaxy X, right? Because that is a problem in their mind needs to be solved. But when you ask that question, the only way to solve is to find a way to grow food. But if you ask a slightly different question that says, why do we eat food? And just by asking why we eat food, you say, oh, we need nutrition and we need energy. What are the different ways can you get energy? What are the different ways you can get nutrition? And suddenly it opens up the set of solutions that no one would have ever thought because when they were asking how to grow the food. So simply asking a different question, simply asking a set, looking at the problem slightly differently, it allows you to look at that problem and solve it in a way that no expert would have ever done, right? And that's really the framework I use. You said a whole lot of things that I all want to follow up on. We're going to see how many of these I can actually 
keep in my head at the same time. Let me start with this. Your explanation of why me is a fascinating one because I think a lot of people would think that the answer to why me is because I'm best positioned or I have built a a level of trust in this industry or something. But and those are all perfectly good answers to why me. But your answer is actually because you're thinking about it smarter than other people. There's a there's a real empowerment to that and also in a strange way of a very different barrier to entry that reinforces what you were talking about a moment ago about how outsiders can make a major impact. But I will say that that also, I think, isn't something that people often find intuitive. People don't often think of themselves as being the best position to do something simply because they're thinking of it in a certain way. And partially, I guess that's because they're not being validated by others who might think they're crazy. And maybe they are, but (laughs) they often struggle to know whether or not they have the Mm -hmm. kind of insight or idea or abilities Mm -hmm. to actually make a meaningful difference. And maybe they don't give themselves the permission to try. And I wonder what you say to someone who is in that moment where maybe they say, you know what, I'm hearing, hearing this explanation of why me and I, I believe that I believe that I have an answer to those questions. I, I believe that I am asking the questions that nobody else is is asking, but I'm still not quite sure that I am the right person to do this. How does somebody give themselves that permission or <laughs> gain the trust of others yeah. so that they are actually able to do the thing that they are well positioned to do? But, so I think there are a couple of inherent questions you're asking here. One is, do you believe in yourself? So your belief system is the biggest barrier to anything you do in your life because your belief system to some extent changes your thoughts and your thoughts change your actions. So if you don't, you have a certain belief system. Hey, I don't speak. I speak with an accent. I can't do that. I mean, look at all these great entrepreneurs. They're so fluent. They speak just perfect English. Now, you came, you're an immigrant. You don't even speak like them. You don't look like them. You will never be an entrepreneur, right? Or you go back and say, wait a sec for a second here. When someone like Jason, who is so fluent, speaks to me, I can be multitasking and it still makes sense out of what Jason is saying. When Naveen is talking, if I don't give him 100% of my attention, I have no idea what he's saying. Guess what? That is my asset. When I speak, I get 100% of your attention, right? So being different to me is not disadvantageous. Being different is your asset. And that's my belief system. I look at the world and say, this is a pyramid. There is a one person on the top that's a CEO or an entrepreneur. And if I am like everyone else, I will be here. The more different you are, the more you are at the apex. The fact I'm different, I get to be at the apex of my universe, right? And now that belief system changes everything. And second part of it is, unless you love yourself, unless you really believe you can do, no one else is going to believe in it, right? I think you and I have met people many times and you said, I don't have a clue what this guy is trying to do, but we just love his obsession or passion for what he's doing, I'm going to invest in him. I think he just wants to something. If nothing else, he believes he can move the mountain and I'm willing to bet on it. (laughs) I really love the way that you reframe perceived challenges. And it reminds me, what you were describing there, particularly with the accent and the way in which you then earn people's attention actually reminds me of something. It's a concept in educational research called desirable difficulties. And <laughs> it is a way in which people have been identified to, to learn. And the thing is that you need to, there needs to be some kind of challenge to the information, to, to absorbing and using the information that you're being presented with. Because if it's just, if it's presented to you too easily, you won't absorb it. It's the reason why somebody can yeah. Use a, a use a Google Maps to get somewhere and then not yeah. be able to replicate where they went at all because That's it was too right. yeah. easy. They didn't absorb the information. But of course, if it's too challenging, then you're not going to do it at all, right? I, I mean, you know, yeah. if, if you yeah. 
if you were impossible to understand, then it, people wouldn't listen. Yeah. But you're perfectly able to be understood. So anyway, I thought it was just, that was a really interesting, I don't know if you're familiar with that concept. Yeah. Of no, I did not, but that's really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting, yes. Be, because it's basically what you're leveraging, right? I mean, basically what you're yeah. arguing is that by by demanding, by being a little different and therefore demanding more of somebody's kind of mental processing, yes. you are you are earning more of their attention, but then also yeah. they're they're thinking deeper about what it is that you're saying, which is a desire. You're priming them. You're priming them to actually be able to absorb the information. And that means you're more impactful. Yeah, that's right. Before I, there's another thing that I wanted to follow up on, but let me, from, from what you said before, but, but I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. So I always love origins of thought. And I, I yeah. wonder if, because, because you used that very personal example of the accent, I wondered if there was a moment or a experience that helped you make this recognition for yourself. There, there must have been, or presumably there was some time with, where maybe you were more self-conscious about your accent and, and then you, you came to the theory that you just shared, which is an incredibly compelling one. But I, I'm curious where that actually came from and if, if that was an outgrowth of an, of an experience in your life. I don't remember, to be honest with you, these type of things that people believe that, you know, they just somehow that is a specific movement where you somehow change. And what I find in life is that it's really a continuum of experiences you yeah. have. And one day you become a different person over time. And somebody who has been with you doesn't see the change and someone who hasn't seen you for two years, you are a different person. So it's like saying that it's the last straw that broke the camel's back. And I'm all, and you and I both know it's not the last straw. It's all other straws that actually broke the camel's back. Right? Right. But people look for that last straw and then say, hey, what was that experience? But having said that's really interesting is that what I realized was that there are times when people would say, this guy is really smart. And part of them was saying, I don't understand a lot of what he's saying, right? <laughs> and that was really interesting. Like nobody wanted to look stupid. And I'm talking and say, wow, you're really smart because partly it's because they don't understand it. So that means I must be smarter. Right? Hmm. And I think the feeling was just, I think it became a thing. It's like, okay, that means I can be myself. I don't have to be someone else. And I can still communicate in a way that I find. And it's different. I mean, like my way of explaining things may not be someone who's saying, I can't. that's just a, such a broken English. How can anyone talk like that? And to <laughs> me, that's my style. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to pick up on was, yeah. so you used this fun example of how do we go live on in another galaxy? Yeah. You're breaking down these challenges. And what it reminded me of was a conversation I had many years ago with Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings. And we were talking about how he grappled with an existential challenge to his business. That existential challenge was that, of course, DraftKings is, they would dispute this terminology, but let's just be honest, they're in the gambling business, right? And they, when they first launched and, and gained awareness along with FanDuel and some other competitors, mm -hmm. it was operating in a very gray legal zone. And a couple attorneys general, in particular, New York and Massachusetts, started threatening to pass laws that would basically would have put them out of existence. Mm -hmm. And so the company had to figure out how to navigate that. And it was, you know, like I said, an existential threat for the company. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because the thing that really stuck with me about our conversation was that he, I, I asked him, well, how do you manage an existential threat? How do you manage a, a problem so big that it is literally the difference between you existing and not existing? Mm -hmm. And he said, the only way to do it is to just treat it like it's another problem. It's just another, pro just because it's a very large problem doesn't mean that it's not a problem. It's not, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of graduate into supernatural being. It's just a, problem. And you have to address it by breaking it down into a series of more manageable problems. And so in this case, it was understanding, well, okay, how do we, we have to get engaged in, in like state legislatures now, and we have to start understanding what it is that they're looking for. We, we have to start thinking about policies that would meet what the states are demanding, but also that keep us in business. And and so, you know, okay, well, if we're going to get involved in state legislatures, then I guess we need people who do that. So now we need to get into <laughs> lobby it. And lobby. you just start breaking it down. And yeah, um exactly. And, exactly. and it's very similar to what you're what you're talking about. And yeah. and I, I just yeah. wanted to 
circle back to this, I think, very powerful way of understanding very large problems, which is that which is that I think sometimes problems become so big that people don't know where to start and therefore they yeah. don't even begin to address them. That's right. But the recognition that even the largest problems, whether it is how do we keep our company in business in the face of regulation or how do we go colonize another galaxy, yeah. It's, yeah. it's the same approach. And, and that approach has to be, this is just simply a big problem. We got to figure out how to step our way towards it. And just take a smaller problem. You can say, break it down into what are the 10 things that need to be done. And you just start taking one at a time and tackling them. At the end of the day, being an entrepreneur is really a blocking and tackling. I mean, we can have all the strategies of the world, but at the end of the day, it's about block and tackle. Right, right. It, it is very interesting how, how so much of what people are doing at a, at a grand scale level, right? Building billion dollar companies or, or yeah. operating a, a small retail storefront yeah. requires the same, I mean, they're obviously very different degrees, but the same mix of qualities of thinking that, that, that entrepreneurship in a way is, you, know, you defined an entrepreneur as a problem solver. And I love that because I think that the thing that the entrepreneur is doing is figuring out how to calibrate their mind towards problems are solvable which by itself is not an easy mindset to adopt. That's right. And that really is the crux. First thing you have to believe, there is no problem that innovation and entrepreneurship can't solve. And that's just fundamental belief you have to believe. There is going to be enough innovation and enough of someone actually grind through that problem to solve it, right? And that's really the, the grit of an entrepreneur and a never giving up attitude and the innovation together can solve almost any problem that you want. Okay, so I love that I love that you just brought this up because I I want to I want to share an interesting conversation that I I had that feels on its face counter to the idea of this kind of grit and never give up but that yeah. I that are complementary to each other in a way that I really love your perspective yeah. on. So, okay. Okay. I am guilty, I will admit. I am guilty of sharing stories in which someone tries and tries and tries and doesn't give up in the face of a lot of people telling them that they're crazy. And then they prove everyone wrong. They were right. And we love those stories, right? We, we love those. There are a lot of times you go through them and you basically fall flat in your face. You get bloodied and everyone tells you, look, we told you wrong and you did not learn. Why aren't you learning from other people's experience when they're telling you right there, don't go there, you're going to get bloody and you still went there. And then you're telling me, oh, I didn't know when you go fight a tiger, you actually can get hurt. Yeah. But no, I mean, how could you possibly, that is stupid to not do that, right? And to large extent, so I don't think, I think, yes, I think the way I look at the stuff is that's called stupidity. So the not giving up is not essentially saying, okay, I'm going to go there. I see a wall. I'm going to hit the wall and I'm going to see how can I actually walk through that wall. Yeah, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about, not giving up. Not giving up means he's saying, okay, I acknowledge that there is a wall. And once you acknowledge, then you're not saying, hey, I'm going to walk through the wall and understanding the limitation that I cannot break through that wall. And then what are my alternatives now? My alternatives are to be able to lift to the height to go above the wall, to be able to come back and saying, is there a way to go around the wall, right? And so basically that to me is about adapting to the situation, not suddenly saying that I don't even acknowledge that this hurdle doesn't exist, right? And that's the difference between not giving up or giving up. So when you get to the wall, the person who says, I'm not going to give up, is going to walk through the wall and keep hitting the wall and keep saying, I can get bloodied. And everybody's going to say, why can't you see that there is a wall there? But And the person who doesn't give up and says, yes, it is there, but here are the five ways I can do that now that can get around. Mm, right. So I, wonderful way to break that down. I, I'm going to just continue with the thing that I was thinking about because I, I, it, it, I think, accelerates this thinking that you, you have yeah. here. So, okay, I talked to, so I was talking to Annie Duke. She is a former professional poker player, is now an academic and, and studies how people make decisions. And she just wrote this book recently called Quit. And the argument that she makes in it is that 
quitting is a important decision-making tool that we often don't take seriously enough because quitting gets a bad rap. Right? You know, people mm -hmm. are told winners never quit, quitters never win, and that it is something about the grit and determination of people that is is what's worth celebrating. Which is why I said I'm guilty of sharing these stories that I think will the lesson for people is just never get, don't listen to the people who say no, just keep going. Right. And, and Annie says, look, <laughs> she says, the way that you should think about it is if you, what would happen if you had to marry the first person you ever dated? Well, I'll tell you, she's like, I'll tell you what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that you're not going to go on any dates. Right? <laughs> you're like, you know, you're never going to date anybody because you're going to be afraid that you have to commit to this, this very mm -hmm. first person. And the reason why we are typically able to find the person who is right for us is because we have the opportunity to try and quit many people. And this is what we need to think about when we're pursuing anything, that we date ideas, we date projects. And I, and I agree. So I think that's what I'm trying to say. Is maybe yeah. like, so I can more expand on what you just said, because I think identical thought, so the way I look at this stuff and saying, your idea that you have to solve the problem may or may not work. And every idea that does not work simply becomes a stepping stone to a different idea. So you say, well, that didn't work. Let me try this. Well, that didn't work. Now these two ideas no, don't work. Here is another idea that might work, right? The point is you don't give up on solving the problem, but you constantly are giving up on the ideas that you had about solving that problem, right? Oh. So, right. so that's Wonderful. the difference what I'm talking about is that so I would say that a entrepreneur is constantly pivoting, adapting and pivoting. That did not work. That did not work. That did not work. That did not work. And but not giving up to say there is no more solution out there. So you don't give up that the solution doesn't exist. All you simply say is, I haven't found the right solution yet. Right. And that but doesn't mean you take that idea that does not work and you keep saying, I'm going to keep trying that idea. That And that's what we all do. In fact, if you look at almost every single company that goes through this near-death experience is that certain ideas don't work. And then suddenly you come up with the different ideas. I think Edison said it the best. I did not fail 10,000 times. I figured out what 10,000 ideas did not work. So it allowed me to come up with the ideas that did work. Yeah, right, right. Uh, that's a really valuable and important nuance that you're bringing there because it's allowing people to do both things at the same time, or yeah. which is to persevere and to quit, to utilize the best of both. Because what you're what you're doing here is you're you're recognizing the difference between the uh, the the mission and the execution, and that we have to go into trying to solve a problem knowing that the execution is is not going to be perfect and and possibly in fact is a terrible idea, but that the problem that you've identified remains a problem worth solving. And so the question, I guess, is how committed are you then to figuring it out versus how, or how committed are you to that singular idea you originally had of how to solve? That is the difference. That is the difference between a companies that fail because a lot of these, if I may say so, a lot of the entrepreneurs who come from science background or with a solution always end up failing because they believe that's the only way to solve this problem. Whereas people like me, I don't know how to solve the problem, so I'm not married to a solution, except I'm married to solving a problem. And that I may try 10 different ideas as, as opposed to saying this has to work because this is my idea. So actually, this is maybe a nice moment then to take all of this great theory that we've had and, and apply it because you can then yep. show me how it played out as you built Viome. Because here you have, here, you know, here you have a company doing something incredibly innovative inside of a very challenging space. And, and you're practicing what you're preaching because you didn't spend your entire career in medicine. And, and I imagine, although, although the, the company is incredibly successful and polished right now that that the thing that I'm looking at when my Viome test appears in my mail is not what Viome was at the very beginning. Nope. So nope. so yeah. so take take me through some of the theory that we've just talked about here about identifying a problem but being completely open yep. to the million different ways of solving it and how you worked through that yourself in building yep. Viome. Well, that's by the that's the best question anybody's ever asked me because this is how the rubber meets the road. How do you apply all these theories? Seven years ago, so step back and we say, I said, you know, I'm finishing up this project of going to the moon. What do you do when you're taking a moonshot? I mean, what is the thing you do next? Right? And I said, all right, what if, what's the next big problem that I want to solve? And I went back to my framework of why this, why now, why? This? 
And my first thing was, look, there are big, if you look at the humanity, what are the biggest problems? Healthcare, education, agriculture, I mean, climate change. These are some of the biggest problems facing humanity. Now, it starts, you know, I'm saying like, what do I really want to do with my life? And I say, look, I really get excited about education and healthcare. So I'm going to look at these two areas and say, what can I do? And the more I start to think about it, it looks like the problems, at least on the surface, look very similar. In both cases, people say, hey, the education system is broken. The healthcare system is broken. And when you look at this stuff and see, they are neat, they're not broken. They are doing exactly what they were designed to do. Our education system was designed to teach you skills. And in olden days in the industrial era, you could use that skill for the rest of your life. And life was wonderful. What we need today is completely different, which is now we're living in the world of exponential technologies. Any skill you learn by the time you even graduate could become obsolete. And now we have a different challenge. So that means education system is not broken. It is obsolete. Right? That means now you need to rethink, not simply try to fix something that's not broken. Right? You don't take a, your grandpa using a flip phone and say, grandpa, your phone is broken. Grandpa says, it just does exactly what I want to do. I dial and it works. Well, it doesn't play the Candy Crush, but it wasn't designed to play Candy Crush, right? So my point is we have a different need and you redesign the different things. Healthcare was the same thing. It was designed for the times when we were dying from infectious diseases, acute diseases. And our healthcare system does a great job of that. Now, let's not talk about COVID for a second here, but (laughs) we did a good job of taking care of infectious diseases, acute diseases, and the world is suffering from these chronic diseases. And whether it's obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, pick a name you want. These are the things, and younger and younger people are getting them, more and more people are getting them. So my first question was, we as humans haven't really evolved to be a different species so there's got to be something that had changed in the last 50, 60 years that is making us sicker and sicker without being a completely different species. So my first thing was, what if we can find a way to prevent and reverse these chronic diseases? What if we can understand the, what is causing the onset of these disease and what is causing the progression of these disease that will allow us to prevent them and reverse them? Now go back and why this? And we say, God, God forbid, we can actually understand what causes someone to become obese, what causes someone to have heart disease or causes someone to be diabetic or depression. We can find a way to cure it. If we could do this, would it help a billion people? The answer is 8 billion people. Every one of us is going to benefit. Check mark. The next question was, why now? And we said, okay, we look at this stuff to solve this problem. Here are the things that need to happen. We have to be able to digitize the human body because once you digitize, you can use all the digital tools to be able to do something. You have to be able to process this massive amount of data and you have to be able to use AI that is self-learning to be able to come back and say, here is what is going on in people who are sick versus people who are not getting sick. You say, okay, so digitization. Well, when we started seven years ago, the cost of taking a single sample was about $1,200. And we said, holy cow, that is unsustainable. We took a deep breath and said, well, but look, it used to be $10,000, $100,000, billion dollars when we sequenced. This come down to $1,200. I think in the next three to five years, this will come down to $100. But guess what? We sit here is down to $17 or $18 now, right? Wow. So even though when I thought I was 10 times optimistic, I was still four or five times pessimistic. And that's <laughs> the beauty of exponential technology is that even we think linearly and we just technology is growing exponentially, right? So we said that was good. The second part was processing. And we said we don't have access to supercomputer, but we can fire up these things on cloud and we can take up 10,000 cores and run the damn thing and see what happens. We did. And it cost us about $47, $48 to process a single data. We took a deep breath and said, wow, that's not going to have work. But that has come down for $200 to $47. I'm thinking in the next three to five years, you can see the cost of computing is coming down, cost of things coming down, and cost of storage is coming down. This should be about $10. We sit here at about buck twenty-five now, right? Wow. The last part was AI. And there was just no doubt that AI was growing at a point where we knew we would have a self-learning AI. So we all agreed that was going to be there. And so we said, time to do is now, because by the time we get enough data, 
for three to five years, we can scale this business like crazy. And that's the reason we said time to do this now. Then came the really the strange part, which is why me. Now, as I think Jason, you pointed out, I am not a physician, I'm not a doctor, I'm not, I don't have a degree in medicine. And I start to look at this problem and I start to see what are the companies who are trying to solve this problem doing? And every company we looked at, they were focused on looking at your DNA or your genes. And their theory was that if we know your genes, that's so to you, we can tell you why you're going to become diabetic or you're going to have this disease. And now I'm thinking, wait a second, I am not a doctor, but I do remember my high school biology. Your DNA never changes. That means you do my DNA today and God forbid I gain 100 pounds. My DNA is still the same. I become diabetic. My DNA is still the same. I have heart disease. My DNA is the same. And then I die. Even after I die, you can do my DNA 10 years later. It's still the same DNA. So DNA can't even tell you you're dead or alive. How will it ever tell you you're healthy or sick? So I said, that can't be the thing. So there's got to be something else that's changing. And it went to Khan Academy. What happens to DNA? Well, it makes RNA. RNA makes amino acid that makes a protein. And we say, wow. What if we can measure the thing that's always changing is called RNA. We are going to go focus on doing RNA sequencing. Never ask myself, how the hell are you going to do that? And that's not a part of the flavor. Part is, what if we could do RNA sequencing? Would this solve the problem? And then I went and asked every expert and say, hey, what if we could actually RNA sequence this stuff? Would it tell us when you become diabetic? Would it tell us? And the answer was yes. And they start laughing because they say no one has ever done it. And I said, let's not worry about that for a second. <laughs> the second thing was, they say, well, that doesn't itself actually tell you what is going on because we as humans are actually 99% of all the cells or genes in our body don't come from a mom and dad. They come from these microbiome that live in our gut, in our mouth, and all over us. 100 trillion of them all over us. And now I'm thinking, wait a second, this is some news to me. So I'm going to start Googling. So I went to Dr. Google. Alzheimer and microbiome, Parkinson's and microbiome, cancer and microbiome, obesity and microbiome. Literally every disease I thought would start to show. There's a research that shows how your microbiome is actually involved in these diseases. You would argue that's a eureka moment, right? And that point I thought, wait a second. If everyone believes it, and there are 10 companies that are doing microbiome testing, why is this problem not getting solved? And then you go back to the first principle. What questions are they asking? And it turns out every single microbiome company to date was asking the same question, which is, I want to know what organisms are in Jason's gut, what organisms are in Debbie's guts, right? And they're trying to find out what organisms are there so they can find out what's causing what. I am keep thinking that I don't know what these organisms are. They're probably like a tiny human beings. That means there could be 10,000 different organisms producing exactly the same thing that's making me sick. Or the same organism in one environment can produce something good in a completely different environment can produce something bad, just like a person. You take a person, put them in a good environment, good behavior, put them in a bad environment, bad behavior. I said, what if the organisms did the same thing? So what if we focused on not focusing on who they are, but focusing on what they are producing? And if we can do that, and we understand what they are producing, how it changes the human gene expression, we could solve this problem. And that literally, and then I went and talked to people at different universities. I went to Los Alamos National Lab. I went to Lawrence Berkeley, Lawrence Livermore. And everyone says, hey, if you can do that, this problem seems solvable. And the only thing was how to do it. Long story short, I went through NASA, JPL, Kennedy Space Center, Houston, all the universities found at Los Alamos National Lab, they were working on a biodefense project to do exactly that which is if there was a bioweapon that actually some terrorists used, how would the government protect our citizens, which was to find out not what organisms were there, but what they were producing so they can create the antidote for it. Got the technology, got the license, hired the guy who actually developed the technology and started the company. And that is really the beauty of us. As we started to do, we launched our first product, which was simply to understand these microbiome without knowing anything, right? And that product we started was a simply a stool test that measures your gut microbiome. And we thought based on that, we should be able to tell you what food you should eat, what food you should not eat, and what's going on in your body. 
And then as we evolve, we realize that that's one part of the puzzle because we don't know what these microbes are producing, how they change in the human host. We have to look at the human host side. So we need to look at their blood and we need to look at their stool at the same time. We say, okay. And then as we went along and now we're looking at the research and saying, wait a second, our human body is like a donut. There is a tube that goes through us. And there are tons of microbes which are lives in our mouth that are actually pre-digesting our food. So your mom must have said, hey, Jason, eat slowly, chew your food. And that was a scientific advice because that allows the oral microbiome to actually pre-digest your food so nutrients can be absorbed. And we started realizing, wait a second, what is happening here must change what's happening in the body. We have to start analyzing all the way from the top of the tube to the bottom of the tube and the other side of the tube to actually know that. And that is literally what became this which is you take your saliva, you take your finger prick blood, and you take a touch of the spoon. We analyze everything. Then what do we do? We tell you, Jason, this is your biological age. So for me, I'm 63. My biological age is down to 50. I'm hoping when I'm 70 years, my biological is down to 40, right? And what is my immune health? What is my oral health? What is my cognitive health? What's my cardiac health? What's my gut health? And then we go through everything. If you want to know details, your dental health, your gum health, your you know digestive efficiency. You want to go deeper and say, talk nerdy to me? Oh, here's your LPS production. Here's your putrescent production. Here's your sulfide production. And then you say, okay, my mind is blown. Tell me what to do now. And then we say, all right, Jason, don't eat broccoli or cabbage because your sulfide production is too high, causing inflammation. And these foods are very high in sulfate to so don't eat. So we tell you, here are the foods you shouldn't eat. And here is why. Eat these foods, and here is why that's happening in your body that will require these nutrients. Here are the food you can enjoy. Here are the foods you should minimize. And then we go step further and say, look, you need a lot of these nutrients. You cannot get enough from the food. So you need these supplements. You need 22 milligram of elderberry. You need 29 milligram of berberine. You need 27 milligram of amylase. You need this blueberry extract of 79 milligram. You need the elderberries. You need all of these things. You need this probiotic. You need this prebiotic. You need this postbiotic. And we literally make the powder for each individual every month. No pre-made stuff. He said, this stuff is for Jason. Go to bin number 27, get in. This is a robotic compounding pharmacy. We make the powder, put them in a capsule, and ship it off to you. Right? That is now, Jason. Now, this is where I get to brag about. Seven years later, we get tens of, we have analyzed over half a million people. People tell us they were, had depression, is gone. They had anxiety, no longer. They're losing weight. They had acne. They had eczema. People who had autoimmune diseases. Suddenly, the things that we never set out to solve are being solved by simply understanding what is causing the inflammation in the body. And we published the papers, by the way. We showed simply for in six months, people who take our diet and supplements, their depression clinical score went down by 47%. Their diabetes went down by 30%. Their anxiety went down by 32%. Their IBS symptoms went down by 40%, right? Now, that itself would have given us a lot of pride. And then we came along and said, wait a sec, we can diagnose cancer before it even just inkling stage one and pre-stage one cancer. And that's literally, that became this product called Cancer Detect. Mm. You can now spit in a tube and we can tell you with 95% specificity, 90% sensitivity, if you have any sign of stage one or pre-stage one cancer in your mouth or throat. And we received wow. FDA breakthrough device designation on this product, right? Someone who had no idea what DNA was, seven years later, is diagnosing cancer, helping people live better with no idea of how it could have been done. And that is, to me, every entrepreneur who is listening to this, to know when you go out and take that step, you don't know how humanity is going to change because of you. Every entrepreneur, if you're, doing, if you're focused on solving the problem and making someone's life better, at the end of the day, improves humanity. So as entrepreneurs are really the problem solver, they are also the catalyst for improving humanity. That was amazing. And really, I mean, you could see everything that you had been talking about laid out through there. 
Naveen, we are way over the time that we um, had set oh aside God. to talk. But so I'll just I'll just make this final point and then I'm going to let you get back to your day, which is I think back to all of the theory that we had talked about. And particularly, we spent a lot of time talking about why me. And that, that was really the point that you just landed on there. And I just want to tell you what I was thinking as you were doing that and then just uh, just have you react to it, which was that you had made the clear distinction of why me isn't because of some particular positioning or authority, but rather because of an ability to ask questions that other people aren't asking. And to me, as you were telling that story, that I mean, that story is like 90% of that story is, okay, that didn't work or okay, that was another problem. So then I had to think, well, all right, well, what if we try, right? Like that was basically what that story was. Now, yep. you know, you, you, you at this point can tell that story in like a matter of minutes, but what you're doing is compressing seven years worth of experience. And so people should keep that in mind that it's not just like a conversation that happens in an hour and then suddenly you've got, yeah. but, but I wonder if when you think back to the the story that you just told and like the, the thing that it can represent to everybody, if, if really at, at the heart of it, it is that why me thing, because clearly what you were able to bring to this at its core, I mean, you brought so many things to, to this process, but at its core, what it was, was a, was a relentless adaptive sense of problem solving, yes. right? There was at no time did you say, well, I guess the problem is too big to solve. What you kept saying was the smaller problem isn't being solved in the right way. And right. so we have to figure it out. And, and so I just want to, I just want to put it to you as a, like, when you think about your, like the, the, the role you play in, in creating all this. And, I, and if my read here of the why me and, and the sort of the core thing that you, that you bring to it, of this problem-solving entrepreneurial mind is what you really see as the engine behind being able to build something this revolutionary. That is absolutely correct. And I think and also this idea that also as an entrepreneur, the other thing that I hear, Jason, that you probably hear is that, you know, what if it fails? How, what will people yeah. say? And my God, I'm going through this tough time. What do I do now, right? And I remind people that life of an entrepreneur is just like your heartbeat. It goes up and down and up and down. And when it's down, all you have to do is hunker down and know the next beat is up. And when you're on top of that beat, never become too arrogant because always know that winter is coming. You never want to live that life of a smooth life, which is really, if you look at a heartbeat, that means you're dead. So when you're looking for a life that's smooth, you're looking for a life of a dead person. So don't be an entrepreneur who wants to be living a life of a dead person. <laughs> And at the end of the day, you're going to run into sometimes when things are just going to be that you don't know what to do anymore, right? And that's where my Eastern philosophy comes in, which I say, look, there are only two types of problems in this world. The things that are in my control and the things that are out of my control. And the things that are out of my control, I simply say, it is what it is and it will be what will be. And universe is my friend. That means everything that happens is for a good reason. And I'm okay with that. And the things that are in my control, I always do the best I can. And then it is what it is. And it will be what will be. And the universe is my friend. And everything that happens is for my benefit. <laughs> I mean, I, the visual of the uh, you don't want to be a dead person is wonderful. You don't want your highs to be too high. You don't want your lows to be too low. What you want is ultimately to live to solve another problem, I guess, is, yes. is all right. It's yes. like, yes. it's a question of how many problems can we solve, not can we avoid them or... Yeah, yeah. Naveen, this has been so informative and inspirational. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jason. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. That's all for this week. But hey, let's keep the conversation going. I write a newsletter called One Thing Better, where every week I give you one way to improve your work and build a career or company you love. You can subscribe for free at jasonpfeiffer.com slash newsletter jasonpfeiffer.com slash newsletter. And if you do, you should definitely reply and say hello. I promise I'll get back to you. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning. So make sure you're subscribed so you do not miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.